Well, good morning, Catawba Valley Baptist Church. Uh, first of all, whatever little birdie told Pastor Aaron that I would be in here today, we're going to have words. Or people are going to have words with you, depending on how well this goes. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, so, so my name is Matt, and yeah, Megan is my awesome wife. Morgan, who just sang, is my sister-in-law. i got to clarify before people question that <laughs> statement too much. Um, Anyway, my name is Matt, and Megan and I, we live in Texas, and I wanted to come out and, and share a, a message with you guys today. Um, what, what's really cool and interesting is if you're born in my generation, you hear about news events that did not happen that long ago, and they don't seem real to you because you don't remember what happened. So I, I get to relive things like this for the first time. I don't know if anyone knows what happened on January 15th. 2009, if you can picture a story in your head, on January, January 15th, 2009, I know that I can't remember where I was January 15th, 2009, because I would have been 11 years old, so I was probably trying to figure out how to shoot my brother with a Nerf gun or something on January 15th, 2009. There's something much more important going on in that date, it has to do with Captain Chesley Solenberger III, Captain Sully, as he's known. This is a pilot who landed a plane in the Hudson River, 2009. Somebody, I'm, getting, I'm getting some head nods. Some people remember this story. It is, it is so cool to be my age because you get to read about stuff like this and you're like, what? That's crazy. Like, I, I wasn't alive. Like, I was alive, but I wasn't really conscious when that happened, you know? I was 11. That's crazy. So that morning, January 15th, 2009, flight 1549, it takes off out of LaGuardia Airport in New York City. And some of you know the story. Captain Sully takes off his plane. It immediately runs into a flock of Canadian geese. Now, if I'm flying this plane, that's an automatic problem. Not just the fact that the plane has hit some geese, but people who know me know that any bird larger than a chicken or even a large chicken is very scary to me. I mean, I, I worked for Domino's Pizza. I had to deliver a pizza one time, and these people had a pet turkey. And I kid you not, it was standing on their welcome mat. It was my nightmare. So anyway, but not just the fear of birds, obviously, but this plane just slams into a flock of Canadian geese. And in the next three minutes, Captain Sully and his co-pilot had to make a hundred tiny decisions to land the plane correctly looked out over the Bronx and was like, we're not going to land there, obviously. Looked out on the New Jersey Turnpike, considered landing in the middle of that road because it was a long strip, but the traffic would pose dangers for people on the plane, and the plane would disrupt traffic. And so they look at the Hudson River, and in that moment, they fix on the goal, they turn off autopilot, they get the landing gear ready for a water landing, and they have to turn off all these things, turn off the engines, curve in to glide, take a huge left turn, line it up just perfectly, and land on the water. And some people would call that a miracle. And in, in a sense, I would not want to question that. But what's amazing is that for Captain Sully, that was just second nature. He taught as a gliding instructor for so many years. He'd done so many flights that in that moment when the crisis happened, it was just all natural. And what, what I want to talk to us about today is we, we're going to look into Colossians chapter 3. 
And we're going to be looking at the ways that God can rewire our hearts so that the decisions that we make, the actions that that we do, they become second nature. I don't know if you've ever thought about that phrase before, something being second nature, but the point is that you're not born being able to do it. If I had been in the plane that day, there would have been a lot of problems. Problem number one is I would have had to go get a, a rule book for how to fly the plane and start looking up things in the index, and that would not have happened in three minutes. Or I would have just went ahead and winged it, and that would not have gone well. And it's, it's funny to talk about that with reference to an airplane, but in our lives, when decisions come up, we're trying to make the choice to do the right thing, we're trying to make the choice to be patient with a person who's angry with us, we're trying to make the choice to forgive a relative that's hard to forgive. Those things, they're difficult to do in the moment if we haven't gone through a process of God transforming our heart through our actions. So we're going to be talking today, um, we're going to talk about how you are what you love and how God, through our loves and through our desires and through our habits, can change our lives. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, well, well, we'll get into this. Just go ahead, open up to Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, we will get started. The verses are going to be on the screen behind me. We're going to read Colossians 3, 1 through 5. Then we're going to hop at the beginning of that passage and at the end, look at a couple key things. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, a key in on this, this is going to be a major part of our discussion later, which is idolatry. So, um, some of us have heard the word virtue before. Aristotle, really, in his work, Nicomachean Ethics, discusses the concept of virtue, the Greek concept of arete. It's the idea that the little habits that we do every day, they shape who we are so that things that are either good decisions or bad decisions become natural for us. They just become on autopilot. Or modern neuroscience tells us a lot about how the brain actually gets wired and shaped by the habits that you have and things that you do. You may notice, if you know anyone who plays the violin a ton, that their left hand is actually a little bit bigger than their right. We talk about muscle memory. What's crazy is that your brain actually does that as well. There's a lot of studies done on London cabbie drivers who have to memorize over thousands of roads. The part of their brain that controls spatial reasoning is actually enlarged, which is crazy. But these are not just things that you observe in the world. But God's word actually tells us about how the habits that we have shape who we are. And unlike Aristotle's virtue ethics, 
this is not a process that we can do on our own. So as we dive into this passage, please don't think that we're going to be talking today about how you can have good habits, make good choices every day, and that's just going to make you a better person on your own, and you're going to please God through your own efforts. Because this passage starts out with the idea that a transformation has to take place in your life. And then through that transformation, as you use these habits in your life, the Holy Spirit will change your desires and rewire who you are. So let's start with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. I want you to notice two things with this. The first one is it's very easy for us to skip over as followers of Jesus. This is in the past tense. It's a, it's a past action with present implications. You have been raised with Christ. So a lot of times as followers of Jesus, we talk about how um, we, if those of us who have given our lives to Christ, we've given our faith to Jesus, we've given him our loyalty. Jesus, then, we, we would typically talk about that experience as, I have been saved in the past. God has rescued me from my old way of life, and God has a future for me with him. And the Bible does talk about salvation that way. It's a past tense thing. And it does talk about our resurrection with Jesus as something that will happen in the future when Jesus returns. That's 1 Corinthians 15. That's everywhere. But there's also, paradoxically, this other side of that where, yes, we, we will be resurrected one day when Jesus returns to remake the world and to bring us with him. But in another way, we have already been resurrected to a new way of life with Christ. We've been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection so that we can already right now begin to taste and live the kind of life that we will live one day in his kingdom. That's when we talk about, because a lot of times as Christians or as followers of Jesus, we, we can have trouble explaining to other people, or even to ourselves if we're honest, like, okay, I, I know that God has forgiven me for everything that I've done in my past back then, and that I have a relationship with God now, and I know that God has a place for me in his kingdom in the future, but how am I supposed to live right now? Do I just do good things and try to please God? Well, that's not what people talked to me about back then. Um, do I just just kind of do what feels right, follow my heart. Well, you're going to crash the plane that way for sure. But instead, this Colossians 3 talks to us about in this life, God is taking us on a process of formation through the Holy Spirit and rewiring us so that we will begin to already speak the language and live the kind of lives that we're going to live in his kingdom one day. Or as Jesus would say, let it be on earth as it is in heaven, not just in the future, to pray for that reality now, to make that in my life as much reality as possible through faith. So you, you have already been raised is the first point of this passage. And then it says, therefore, seek the things that are above. That's an active thing that you have to do. You have to set your mind and your will and your heart on something. And what, what we're going to be talking about is how the goals that we have in life, the desires that we have, even the hidden ones that we don't know about, they shape who we are. They shape our habits, which is what this passage is all about. Um, I think a good analogy for this, because if you're saying, well, if, I've, if God has already resurrected me in some sense already in Jesus and given me a new kind of life through the Spirit, why do I have to seek the things that are above? Why do I have to 
try to put in effort to, uh, to continually give the patient response to someone in a small scenario so that it's easier for me to be patient with my spouse later on? Or why do I need to invest in these habits if God is already working in me? And I think a helpful analogy, okay, apparently I'm really bad on knees because my dad just had a knee replacement and uh, my mother-in-law also just got a knee replacement. So I don't know if I'm a common denominator here, but maybe I drop stuff a lot and people have to pick it up. I don't know. But so my dad right now, and if you know my dad, (laughs) he went into the doctor and they immediately scheduled a knee surgery. It was like Batman in the Dark Knight where they're like, you have no cartilage left, sir. We need to get you pain meds today. My dad was like, oh, really? I didn't even, like, it wasn't a big deal to him. Yeah, I know. You all know people like that. Yeah, that's my dad. Well, so he's, he's had the knee surgery now. And if anyone who's had a knee repl- replacement knows that the doctor has gone in and given you something that's totally new. And your new body, it's there. But it's going to take you some physical therapy and a little while to figure out how to use this properly and to walk on it. In the same way, God has given us a new life in Christ. That's what this passage is about. You've already been raised in Christ. He started this transformation in our lives. But there is a process. It's like moral physical therapy where God, we don't just do the right things because, oh, I want to be kind to people. I want to be generous with my money. I want to be generous with my time. But through those habits, the Holy Spirit is helping you walk into your new life so that it feels totally natural. So that living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is second nature, which is second nature is all throughout what the Bible talks about, about being the new person, putting on the new person in Christ. So seeking the things that are above, this is an active process of habit formation in our lives. And then this this is what I want us to dwell on today, is Paul then goes through this list of things that are destructive to ourselves, destructive to other people. He starts off with faithfulness and relationships, whether that's sexually being faithful to your spouse, or later on he talks about the words that we use and how they destroy other people in in these different lists. What I want you to key in on is at the end of this list, the Apostle Paul, an early follower of Jesus, he makes this shift that is mind-blowing. He says this. He says, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, or you may have a translation that translates that as greed. It's it's kind of a difficult word to translate because it just has to do with the idea with wanting more. Whether that's I continually want more and I want more outside of my committed relationship with my spouse, or I want more, I just want more money, I'm never going to be satisfied. This word, it has to do with looking for satisfaction in things that will ultimately not satisfy us. It's I want to get I want to find my self-worth in my work, in the relationships that I have, in the amount of money that I have. And those things, they're not bad things, but they're terrible gods. And Paul, he says that this kind of wanting more all of the time, this kind of greed or covetousness, it's idolatry. And I know today you probably think like 
okay, idolatry, that doesn't really apply to me. I mean, if you've heard that word before, you, you typically picture like a statue in your head that maybe some ancient person is bowing down to this statue or making a sacrifice to it. And you're like, man, people back then are idiots, okay? Like they think that this statue is going to save them. Well, I mean, if you really look at Babylonian or Mesopotamian texts with the opening of the mouth ritual, which we for sure won't do today because I know you did not come to church to do that, you would realize that these statues are connected with the God behind them. And I mean, if you're worshiping a God like Baal uh, in, in the ancient Near East, Baal represents power. Baal offers you mastery over the people around you. You're worshiping a goddess like Asherah, she'll offer fertility for the land, which is economic prosperity, or she will offer you sexual satisfaction. And I mean, people today would not want to worship power or money or anything like that, right? Like, it'd be pretty ridiculous today to have a statue of an animal that represents prosperity, right? Like, wouldn't that be pretty crazy? To have a statue that represents the good life that I want for myself, the amount of money that I can make. Or um, Tim Mackey's pastor in Portland, I think, says it well that idolatry is something that can happen when we deify social structures as though they demand our ultimate allegiance. When we say my tribe and my group is way better than your tribe and your group, and I'm going to ultimately put my trust in my tribe and my group as my God. That's a form of idolatry. And it's something that shapes the habits in our lives. And we wouldn't do that today. Like, we definitely would not represent our vision for how the country would be run through animals, right? That would be pretty ridiculous. <laughs> this is not to point fingers at anybody. But it's to help us realize Paul is making this shift that idolatry, it's not just bowing down to a statue. And the desires that we have that shape us, the goals that we have, there's these secret gods that we give our allegiance to. I wanted to show one more slide because I think this is a really interesting connection. Um, this swoosh, um, it's the symbol for a shoe company, Nike, which is named after the Roman goddess of victory. Nike. And I mean, you could give an offering to Nike at a Roman temple and expect that she would help give you success. But it'd be pretty ridiculous to give a financial offering to something represented by a swoosh and hope that it would give you success and victory in your athletic endeavors. But you can see the connection here because brands, social structures, they want to be more than a brand, more than a social structure. They want your loyalty. And they want to shape your habits and your vision for the good life. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 3, and let's look at how God wants to break this process in our lives. It says, put to death. So there's this active process where I'm examining the things that I really desire in life and how the habits that I have shape who I am. And God is saying, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I know I'm, I'm speaking on expert mode today. Someone just let me know if the loss was too close. And God is saying, if you, you've been raised with Christ, you've experienced a transformation in the past, you've had your knee replacement, 
Now walk with me. Put to death those old habits continually, every day, by your small actions. Be patient with that stranger who is on the bus next to you and offer them a little bit more support than you normally would. Give them a little bit of your time. Because over time as you do that, it's going to become much easier for you to just naturally be patient when your sister-in-law or your brother-in-law or someone is making trouble. So there's this process of putting to death. I want to show you guys this quote. I think this is really interesting. Um, there's a, there's a postmodern author. You may not know him. His name is David Foster Wallace. He's a very famous author today. As far as I know, he is not a follower of Jesus. He's speaking at a college, and he's talking about atheism. He's talking about the future of these students' lives. I know there's a lot of words on the screen. I promise I will not read them all. But he says this, and I think it's really interesting. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. That's Paul's idea of covetousness, being idolatry. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 3. Because the ultimate truth, and what we know from the Bible, is that only God can satisfy us. God is the only worthy goal out there because he can give us everything that we need. God can give me the approval that I will not be able to find just by expanding my social circle and by dominating in my relationships. God can give me the approval that I may be seeking in encounters with people. God can give me the security that I'm ultimately looking for in money, different situations. So let's... let's Make like Captain Sully and land the plane a little bit here. So I have a couple of questions for us that I think this passage can make us reflect on when we're thinking about maybe the gods that we worship in our lives or the habits that we have in our lives that are not shaping us toward our ultimate goal of living as native citizens of the kingdom of heaven, but that are old habits from our old way of life before we came to know Jesus. So here, here are some of, the, some of these questions. Um, think about these a little bit. And before, before I do, I think it's very helpful to talk about these questions with someone else because um, I'll give you an example of bad breath. Uh, my sister has told me my whole life that I naturally have very bad breath. And I, maybe talk to Megan about that. I don't know. She'd testify. The thing is, when you have bad breath, you don't know that you have bad breath as much as the people around you know that you have bad breath, right? And unfortunately, when we are giving our allegiance to things in our life that are not God, it's often hardest for us to see those things. So think about these questions, and maybe after today, have a conversation with someone that you trust and see if they're seeing patterns in your life that God is going to be able to use to shape you into the person that he's designed you to be, or patterns that are leading you back to your old, destructive way of life. So here's, here's the questions. 
where am I spending my time? Where am I investing my money? Whose approval do I need? And what makes me angry? I think, as I think about those questions in my life, those questions, where am I spending my time? Where am I investing my money? Whose approval do I need? And what makes me angry? Those, those help me realize the ways in my life that I'm committed to things that are not God, or that there are good things in my life that I've elevated to the place of God. You know, when I get angry at someone, like, you know, if I can get angry at Megan, or if I can get angry at a classmate, usually, when I get really angry, I will typically say, like, I'm so sorry, that was not me. I don't know where that came from. But the fact is that we're all like red solo cups. We're full, whatever we're full of spills out when we get bumped. And so in those moments, when I snap at somebody, when I'm so angry at the traffic, when someone asks, when a student comes up to me at church and asks me for money for yet another fundraiser, and my gut instinct is not to be generous, but to hold on to the money that I have, when those moments happen, it's like the crisis with Captain Sullenberger. What you are full of, the way that you are wired, the way that God is wiring you, the habits in your life, it spills out. So you think about what, what, what makes me angry? Where am I spending my time? Where am I investing my money? I, I wanted us, um, but before, we, before we close today, I, I really want to reiterate, I, I wanted to share this topic so badly, but prayed a lot about this because I don't want anyone to come away today thinking that the message, the central message of our faith is that you put your trust in Jesus and then you try as hard as you can and then if you try hard enough, God loves you and God takes care of you and makes you part of his kingdom when you die. Because the, the message of Christianity is so much bigger than that. It's that God loves you right where you are and he loves you too much to leave you there. Through God's grace, he gives us all the forgiveness we need, all the new life that we need. He's a surgeon that goes in and replaces the new. We are, he makes us whole and complete new people. We've already been raised with Christ. But God wants so much more for us in our lives than to just then sit around waiting to die and be with him one day. He wants to form us through a process in our lives. And that's, that's what we've been talking about today through Colossians chapter 3. Putting to death our old habits, our old ways of life, seeing those false idols in our lives, and putting on a new way of life in Jesus. I want to end with a quote. This is from Augustine of Hippo. He's a North African bishop around 400 CE, followed the Roman Empire. He writes this. He's talking, talking about God. He says, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. He's picking up something from the prophet Jeremiah. He talks about people like wells. He says, we're, we're Jeremiah 2.13 says that we are looking for water in broken cisterns. We're looking in tiny, leaky cups in our work, in our money, in our relationships with people for satisfaction. But the God is a never-ending well of water.
I love that image. I wanted to end with that today. So if, if you guys will pray with me, I'll go ahead and invite Pastor Aaron up. Father God, we know that you love us right where we are. We thank you for your forgiveness for us in Christ. And we know that there's nothing we can do throughout our lives to earn what you've given to us. Father, we thank you that through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you've given us a new life with you. Not just a new life forever in the future with you, but a new way of life right now. We pray that through our conversations with people that we trust, through our reflection with you, that you would show us through your Holy Spirit the ways that we are committed to following other gods that are not you. We pray, Father, you would remind us that you are our only satisfaction and our only fulfillment. We pray that you would make following you and loving others as natural and second nature as it is for an airline pilot to make a split-second decision. It's in Jesus' name we pray.